Well, as I began studying for this message, I found myself in Romans, and then I found myself in my favorite chapter of my favorite book of the Bible, Romans chapter 5. That's right. You say, Mark, why do you like Romans chapter 5 so much? Well, it, it opens with telling me I'm justified. I've been declared justified. And it closes with telling me I can reign in life. What's there not to like about that? And all in between there, it talks about the gift of righteousness. I like that part as well. It talks about how much Jesus loved me. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it talks about how God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I like that part. It deals with reconciliation a little bit further down in the list. It deals with the message of grace, all in Romans chapter 5. And I was thrilled, because that is my favorite book of the Bible, my favorite chapter, yes, Lord. And I didn't get very far in my notes, and I found that the Lord, I'm not sure exactly how he did this exactly. I really don't know, honestly. He took me to about my least favorite book of the Bible. I'm like, what? I know that's kind of a hard thing to say, but everybody's got their least favorite book of the Bible, don't they? What I mean by that is the book you don't spend much time in. It's the book that you don't memorize much scripture in. Lamentations. The root word to the word lamentations is the word lament. L-A-M-E-N-T. Lament. Lament means to express sorrow, regret, or unhappiness about something. This is probably one of the main reasons we don't spend a lot of time in this book, because we don't like sad stories. We don't like bad news, right? <laughs> We're sophisticated people now. We want hallmark endings to every one of our stories and every one of our movies and every one of our Bible narratives. You're going to be hard-pressed to get it out of Lamentations, I'm telling you. Oh, man, as I read the book of Lamentations, and I read the whole book, it doesn't take very long, half an hour, 20 minutes, something like that, to go through Lamentations, you know, through there I was going, God, when is this roller coaster of chaos going to end for these people? Because it's just one page after page. How many has been in Lamentations recently? Let's see. See what I mean? It's a tough book because it's just chaotic all the way from the start to the end. The book of Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He's got a nickname. You know what they call him? <laughs> they call him the weeping prophet. I can see why. Jeremiah had just a, he had a tough assignment by God. He had to see the destruction of Jerusalem. Whether you see it in the natural or whether you see it in the spiritual realm, it's just as real. In fact, it's more real when you see it in the spiritual than when you see it in the natural. So he had this tough assignment that God had given him to deal with the Israelites at a time when their rebellion and their idolatry was in full bloom. The Israelites had forsaken God. They had started worshiping idols. They had gotten all wrapped up in idolatry. And the book of Lamentation deals with heavy, heavy hitting things. Again, like the destruction of Jerusalem. It deals with sin and its consequences. It deals with sorrows and tears and terrors and fears. It deals with betrayal. It deals with affliction and harsh labor. It deals with chaos and unrest, mockery, famine, thirst, starvation, death, bitterness, and hardship, sickness, and disease. All of these things abound in the book of Lamentations. That short list of viruses kind of gives you a clue as to why Jeremiah is a weeping prophet, didn't it? If you've ever had to be around any of this stuff, I'm going to tell you something, it will make you cry. 
this coming August will be 20 years since I've been a believer. And I have worked in ministry almost my entire Christian life. And as ministers, what you do is you see things behind the scenes that the church doesn't see. And so when I began to look at some of the things that he was dealing with here, first of all, the destruction of Jerusalem. Even Jesus overlooked Jerusalem, and the Bible says he wept. Now, there was only two or three occasions where it said Jesus cried. Outside of Lazarus' tomb was one of them. But when he overlooked Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But he just knew you were too obstinate. You were too stubborn, too rebellious. And I thought about Jerusalem as kind of a, today as a picture of the church, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the church. I don't know if you know who George Barna is, but he's like the spiritual Gallup poll guy. George Barna says that 75 churches in the United States of America every single week close their doors. They padlock their doors. You do the math times 52, that's 3,900 churches every year. Now, granted, there are churches being planted, but still there are 3,900 churches that close every single year. I don't know what that does for you. Maybe, maybe not much, but inside me as a pastor, that makes me weep on the inside. And I think, God, why do all these churches close? What's the deal? I suppose it's for a number of reasons. It's probably because it gets whittled down to no people, or maybe the finances can't support it. Maybe it's a combination of those things. Maybe it's the wrong message. A hundred years ago, we had twice as many churches, Protestant churches in America that we have today. We have about 250,000 Protestant churches in the United States. We had about a half a million of them 100 years ago when we had less population. What? And most of the churches today, 80% of them in America, are either stagnant or their membership is in decline. Are you kind of getting the flavor of what Jeremiah was dealing with? It was much, much more serious than what I'm talking about. And I couldn't help but think, okay, those numbers are skewed a little bit because our churches are much bigger today. Because of transportation, you didn't get on your horse and buggy and go, you know, 40 minutes down the road. So there were a lot, I understand that can skew the numbers a little bit. And so when you see these mega ministries like Joel Osteen's ministry, Creflo Dollar's ministry, you know, just different people. Joseph Prince, huge ministry. So I can see how that could skew the numbers a little bit. But every gentleman I just named, Andrew Womack, all these ministries preach a message of grace. And these are the fastest growing churches in the world. My wife and I were watching Trinity Broadcast Network the other night, and there was a pastor on there. I don't think I've ever seen him on there before. The host asked him to explain grace. He hung his head very softly and thought for a second, and he lifted up his eyes and he says, grace is like rain. He says it's silent until it hits something. I know from my own personal life, when grace began to hit my life, I noticed my voice began to get louder. And I don't mean just in decibels. And what I see across the world is the people that are preaching this message of God's unconditional love. You see, because I can get it. Why would you want to drive 30 minutes to a church and then get beat up by the pastor? I'm not saying they all do that. But get beat up, tell them you got to go home and study more. You got to go home and pray more. You know, and there's nothing wrong with these things. Do that. But that's not who you are. That's not your identity. Your identity is in Jesus. 
I'd rather stay home and watch Joel Osteen and <laughs> let him tell me everything that's right with me. Wouldn't you rather have that than have someone sit there and say, you know, you're, I mean, they're still ministers today. I mean, I see them on TV. They say, yeah, we're just all a bunch of sinners. No, we're not all a bunch of sinners anymore. I'm not a sinner no more. This guy that, that says that, he is 10,000 times probably smarter than I am. But I'm going to tell you something. I have that one revelation. I am not a sinner anymore. I had a nature change. My old nature was a sinner. I do commit sin from time to time. We all occasionally do. I mean, that's not our practice. The Bible says in, I think it's 1 John chapter 3, he that is born of God does not commit sin. That word commit right there literally means does not practice sin. It doesn't mean we don't fall once in a while. I'm not talking about that. But the message of grace has some hands and some arms to keep lifting you up. It doesn't walk by and leave you down there. It, it lifts you up. And I've seen my share of sickness and disease. As a minister, you're going to get called all hours of the day. You'll find yourself in hospital rooms. You'll find yourself in, in waiting rooms. You'll find yourself beside the bed of people dying quite frequently. I've been by that bedside many times. I've watched several people take their last breath, and I've had to put my arms around the family and although it's bubbling in my heart, how do I tell them about this message right here? Great is his faithfulness when they've just lost a loved one. If they know Jesus, they understand it. If they don't know Jesus, that is not a message they want to hear. I want my loved one back. But that is the message that I have to give everybody everywhere I go. I cannot compromise that message. Great is his faithfulness no matter what you are going through. Great is his faithfulness. I don't care if you understand it or not. It doesn't matter. Great is his faithfulness. I stood beside the bed one time and watched a four-year-old girl take her last breath while her parents stood on the other side of the bed. Boy, was that tough. That was tough. And it was just an opportunity to put my arms around that family and just say, great is his faithfulness, no matter what you've just experienced, no matter what you've just went through. It's tough. And Jeremiah was having to deal with this. And so I can appreciate Jeremiah's heart as the weeping prophet. Lamentations consist of five chapters. If it consists of five chapters, would you agree that the middle chapter would be chapter number three? In the midst of all this chaos and unrest, in the midst of all this sickness and disease, in the midst of all this turmoil, sandwiched right in the middle is a declaration that I bet you every person in this room has quoted, at least in part, at one time or another in their Christian walk. It's found in Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 22 and verse 23. I'm going to read it from several versions of the Bible so that you get this flavor of what Jeremiah is saying. In the King James Version, it says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. Stop for just a moment. It ends with those two words, fail not. That's what they call a double negative. Is failing a negative? And if somebody tells you not, is that a negative? That's a double negative. You see, in the Hebrew, they didn't have punctuation marks like exclamation points. We understand when we write a letter and we put an exclamation point on there, it's to express excitement or passion. They didn't have that in the Hebrew language. So what they would do is they would use double negatives or they would repeat themselves. Like Jesus, when he stood in front of Nicodemus, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He wanted Nicodemus to hear this powerful truth. So he said, truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on the version you read, 
but it was to put emphasis on what he was saying. So this wasn't just casual conversation. It is of the Lord's mercies. It is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. It is the Greek equivalent of grace. Haras. One thing I notice about this word, though, as I look it up in the Bible, in the Old Testament, this word chesed, we find multiple English words for the same one word. We see words like love. Chesed. We see mercies. Chesed. Two weeks ago when I preached about Rebecca, he used the word kindness over and over again. It's the same Hebrew word, hesed. And he says, it is of the Lord's mercies. It is of the Lord's hesed. It is of the Lord's grace that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And then he said, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. His compassions are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning so that we can say, great is thy faithfulness. The Message Bible. It takes the word mercies and uses the other said word, love. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. Why? Because they're created new every morning How great your faithfulness. The Living Bible, I like this one. His compassion never ends. It is only the Lord's mercies. It's only the Lord's love. It's only the Lord's kindness. It's only the Lord's grace that have kept us from complete destruction. Great is His faithfulness. His loving kindness begins afresh every day. And then, The version I typically preach out of, which is the New International Version, it's a lot like the King James in this particular scripture. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. There's that double negative again. They never fail. His compassions never fail. In 1923, a man by the name of Thomas Chisholm decided to sit down and write a poem one day. He wanted to write a poem about the faithfulness of God towards his, what he called, ordinary life. When Thomas was 27, he gave his heart to Jesus. He became a, a believer. And when he was 36, he got called into the ministry, basically, about that time. He stood behind the pulpit for one year. Poor health hit his body, and it forced him to retire after one year in the ministry. Toward the end of his life, Chisholm said these words. Now listen to these words. He says, My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years which has followed me until now. Sounding like lamentations to me. I don't have much money and I'm in bad health. And then it was like he dumped the clutch and pulled it into a different gear because now he shifts gears. You heard what he just said. He said, Although... I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. Stop just a second, Thomas. Did you just hear what he said? I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. Let's just say I was at the end of my life. I was an elderly guy. I'm at the end of my life. I've lived it. Now I'm reflecting back, and the thought comes to my mind. Mark, 
you really didn't do much in life. You just kind of went through it. Now it's all passed you by. You, you didn't really leave any legacies behind or whatever it may be. When a thought like that comes to your mind, you must replace that thought with the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. When he stood in the pulpit and began to preach, I'll bet he was thrilled. You mean I get to do this? I get to study all day long and preach to the congregation on Sunday morning? Oh, God, that thrills me. And then all of a sudden something hit his body. You know what he was reduced to? He was reduced to sitting behind a desk the rest of his life as an insurance salesman. Nothing wrong with insurance salesmen. We all need them, right? And how many times do you think he sat there clicking his pen going, oh man, I'd rather be in the pulpit preaching. But, you know, and so what can happen is this condemnation can try to get a hold of you because you're supposed to be doing something religious. You see what I mean? When that thought hits your mind, you must replace it with the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. And when he was sick at home, laying there, going, oh, man, i got to rest when I get home from my insurance job. i got to take this three-hour nap. So what? Take your three-hour nap. Don't let condemnation hit you. Replace that thought with the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. And then how about that quote that he said, you know, he said, my income has not been much in life. In other words, what he was saying, I've never really had a big paycheck in life. I've been cutting up hot dogs and ramen noodles all my life. It's just not really amounted to anything. And boy, I feel a little condemned because that scripture says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's my grandchildren. What do I do with that thought? You replace it with the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant keeping God. I felt the Lord say to me, the greatest inheritance we can leave our children's children is not money. It's not possessions. If you got it, do it. Great. Wonderful. The greatest inheritance we can give our children's children is to give them the revelation of the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant keeping God. If you can go through life and you can implant that into your children and your grandchildren, I'm going to tell you something. All of heaven will applaud. All of heaven will cheer. I would much rather leave that in my kids and my grandchildren than monetary things. He says, although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that He has given me many wonderful displays of His providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. By the way, the name of his poem, this was written in 1923. I didn't tell you the name of the poem. But the poem he sent on to a publishing company the publishing company took one look at it and said, that's just not a poem, that's a song. <laughs> Let's put some music to that right there. And it became nothing other than, great is thy faithfulness. It's a hymn that is sung today. We cherish that hymn. I'll bet you there's not a day in America where that song is not sung somewhere. Great is thy faithfulness. It's obvious that Mr. Chisholm had been in Lamentations because the inspiration for that song came right out of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and verse 23, which says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. How many of you recognize that song? Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Why is there no shadow? Because He's pure light. He's pure love. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not 
Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And then the refrain. Great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> I can't even hardly talk it with what, without trying to sing it. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies, new chesed, new graces, new love. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. When I say, wait a minute, God, I just blew it on my way to church this morning. My wife and I had a little spat in the car. It's okay. Morning by morning, new graces, new mercies, new love I see. Oh, if we can grab a hold of that one truth. I'm going to tell you something. You'll be liberated that His mercies are truly new every day. His love is poured out every day. His grace is poured out every single day. All I have needed, Thy hand hath provided. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. The same faithfulness that's in God is in you, believe it or not. You say, you got a scripture for that? I absolutely do. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 also. The Bible says, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, whatever you want to call it, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then it says, against such things there is no law. You know what? When there's no law, you can do it as much as you want. <laughs> you can use the fruit of the Spirit as much as you want. There's no law. Use it anywhere you go. Use it as much as you want, as much quantity, much quality. There's no law to it. There's no limit, in other words, is what it's saying. Did you hear that one fruit of the Spirit, though? It's faithfulness. God took His faithfulness and He planted it right on the inside of you. He's on the inside of you, right? He's faithful. When Mother Teresa would tour Calcutta, India, she would visit a house called the House of Dian. This was a place that they would care for children in their last days. Hundreds of people would line up outside to receive medical attention. Mother Teresa took time to minister to these people, feeding and nursing those that were left behind to die by other people. Senator Mark Hatfield was overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the suffering that Mother Teresa and her co-workers faced on a daily basis. And he was visiting with her one day and he said these words to her. He said, how can you bear the load without being crushed by it? Little Mother Teresa looked at him and she said, my dear Senator, I am not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. When I read that, it was just like the Holy Spirit gave my heart a hug. I heard him say, our church, our calling for this ministry is not to be successful. Yes, God will make it that way, but our calling, our purpose, our drive is not to wake up every morning and go, we're called to be successful. I know 3 John verse 2 says, beloved, above all things, I would that thou prosper, which means be successful. Let God do the prospering. Let God do the success, okay? We do not come here because we want to be successful. We come because we want to be faithful. We've come to be faithful in what God has called us to do. We are faithful in propagating this message of God's amazing grace that we sang about and His unfailing, unconditional love. To stand in this pulpit and preach the mercies of God, the hesed, the loving kindness, the tender kindness of God. Amen. Great is His faithfulness, and we want to declare that to the whole world. 
The word faithfulness comes from the Hebrew word emunah. Emunah. It's faithfulness. You know, it means a lot of things. It means fidelity. Faithful means full of faith, right? Faithful. But when I was looking in my concordance this week, I found this to be interesting because it says, figuratively speaking, what this word means is security. And I felt the Lord say to me, even last night, don't you like knowing that your eternal security rests in my faithfulness rather than your own? I said, I certainly do. If my eternal security rested in all my faithfulness, ooh, man, I'd be in trouble. It doesn't rest in my faithfulness. It's in his faithfulness. That's why we sing great is thy faithfulness, not great is my faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says this, When we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now, if you understand the magnitude of that scripture, what it just said, when you have lost all your faith, that's what faithless means. When you've lost all your faith in something, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you something to really encourage you. I'm going to remain faithful. One of us is going to remain faithful. If he's living on the inside of me, he'd have to forsake me. If he forsook me, he'd have to disown himself. He can't do that because we're one together. Do you see how that works? He cannot disown me. He cannot because faithfulness is on the inside. And so when I was looking at this word faithfulness, there's three syllables, faithful and ness. We understand what faithful means, but let's deal with that word ness. It's a suffix. We call it a suffix. Ness. What the word ness does, the suffix ness does, is it turns an adjective into a noun. I'm going to explain why that's important in a second here. In other words, if I was to say, my wife Valerie is a sweet woman, well, first of all, that would be a masterpiece of an understatement. I'm going to tell you something. That woman is a gift to the body of Christ. By using that adjective sweet, if I was to put ness on the backside of that and make sweetness out of it, it's no longer an adjective, it's a noun. If I was to take the word gentle, gentle is an adjective, but if I put ness on it, gentleness, it becomes a noun. If I was to take the word thoughtful, thoughtful is an adjective, but thoughtfulness is a noun. If I was to take the word happy, happy is an adjective. It's describing something, but happiness is a noun. And so it is with faithful. If you take the word faithful, it's an adjective. It's describing something. But faithfulness becomes a noun. And why is that important? So that we can see that faithfulness is not just an action by God. It's who he is. It's what he is. It's not just an action because you can withhold actions. You know what? He has no choice. God has no choice but to show faithfulness to us. He cannot show us anything but faithfulness and love and has said and mercies because that's who he is. If I went down to the store and bought a can of paint, red paint, red, bright red paint, and I was swinging the can around and I hit it against something and punctured it, guess what color paint would come out? Red paint, right? Because that's what's inside the can. This is what God is. He has no choice but to be faithful. My goodness. So why is it so important to know the faithfulness of God? 
because we are under a covenant of faith. We are attached to his faithfulness through his covenant. I want to talk about this covenant for a moment. In Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6, we see these words. But if in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now he didn't say that the old covenant was not established upon promises. It, it was. He's saying the new covenant, though, is established upon better promises. See, under the old covenant, it was a covenant between God and man. Under the new covenant, it's a covenant between God and Jesus. And we happen to be in Jesus, so we, we come along for the ride, if you will. But the old covenant was conditional promises. God said, listen, I'm going to be good to you if you're good. I'm going to bless you if you obey me. I'm going to curse you if you disobey me. Is that really what God wanted? No, it's not what God wanted. It's what the Israelites wanted. They said, listen, we are able. You just give us a set of rules. Give us some framework. We are able to, to keep your whole law. And I'll tell you what, God, if we mess up, we're so confident, you can bring the curses on us. God's saying, no, I don't want that kind of thing in place. Yeah, that's what we want. No, yes, that's what we want. Okay, I'm going to give you what you want. He says, for there, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, Whoa, wait a minute now. Highlight that, man. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect, the Bible says. But the law is like a chauffeur. The law picks you up and carries you to the cross. And then he drops you off and he turns around and he goes gets another person. And he brings them to the cross. He can't help you at the cross. He can drive you to the cross. That's it. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. You say, make it plain, Mark. What's the difference between these two covenants? The difference is God does not turn away from us when we're misbehaving today. Did he do it here? He sure did. Because that's what they asked for. It says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful. God was faithful. He said, but they didn't remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. He can't do that today, though. He would be disowning himself. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Watch what he says in verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. <laughs> I'm going to forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's the covenant you're under today. He has forgiven your wickedness and he remembers your sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. This is the trouble that believers get into. They're still trying to live under the old covenant. He just told you it's obsolete. You can't get parts for it anymore. It's obsolete. Throw it in the garbage. It's obsolete. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete will be outdated and will soon disappear. In other words, just a second it breaks down. You've got no parts for it, nobody to work on it. You're going to have to throw it away. Let me tell you something, and I felt the Lord say this to me last night. People don't want to let go of what they are familiar with, including the operating software of the Old Covenant. I want to explain this. I'm really going out on a limb here. 
<laughs> I'm really going out on a limb here. I've never preached this in church. I've told it to a couple of my friends in part. Last Monday, we came over here on Memorial Day. We came back to Kenosha, my wife and I. We had dinner with two of our, our dear friends, Janet and Lauren. We sat in a restaurant for four hours talking about God. We got on the covenant. My wife said to me, tell them about the Wizard of Oz. I'm sure there's nobody in America right now preaching about the Wizard of Oz. Let me tell you something. First of all, we started watching that movie when we were kids. And when I first got saved, my kids wanted to watch that, but I was so religious, man. I'm like, no, you ain't watching that. You can just ask my boys to this day. I mean, some of the stuff they'll tell you will crack you up, man, about how religious I was. You ain't watching that. Why not, Dad? Because it's got witches in there, boys. You ain't watching no movie with witches. What I didn't see is this would have been a great opportunity to show them the gospel hidden right in the Wizard of Oz and show them the message of grace. And what the Lord has recently showed me this week is the message of the two covenants. And I'll explain it, okay? Dorothy is the main character of the movie. And Dorothy represents all of humanity. She's lost her way. She's been displaced. That's every human being, really. The Wicked Witch of the, whatever it was, East or West, she obviously is the, a picture of the devil. Those flying monkeys are a picture of demons and demonic horde and whatever it may be. The wizard is actually a picture of God. Toto, Toto the dog, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Now please, I'm taking some liberties here. I will explain this. Toto is like a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, you say, where does he come in? He's the yellow brick road. You see, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. There was only one road from where Dorothy was at to Emerald City, which is a picture of heaven. There was only one road, and that was the yellow brick road, and that's a picture of Christ. The ruby slippers, a picture of grace. I'll explain that. And so Dorothy starts out on this journey, and she finds herself in Munchkin Land. You remember Munchkin Land? Had all the little guys and little girls. <laughs> Adults, but they were little people. Munchkin Land. She gets greeted by what I call the lollipop kids. It's the three little guys. They got their hands in their, one hand in a pocket, sucker over their shoulder, and they're all standing next to each other. And they're talking out the side of their mouth. And they've kind of got this little snappy dance going on. We represent, you know what I'm talking about? The lollipop kids, the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids. We represent the lollipop kids. Having watched that movie 30 or 40 times growing up, I knew all the lines to this movie. It was probably about a year ago. I was just kind of acting goofy around the house one day and stuff like that. And I said to them, I started singing that song. I don't know why it came to my mind. We represent the lollipop kids, the lollipop kids. And, and my wife said to me, what are you saying? I said, I'm singing that song from the Wizard of Oz. You know, we represent the lollipop kids. She said, that's not what they're saying. I said, well, sure it is. She said, no, that's not what they're saying. I said, honey, I've watched the movie like 30 or 40 times. I know that's what they're saying. She said, Google it. And so I said, okay, I'm going to show you. You're wrong. And you know how you start typing things in and it starts populating certain things? When I got to we represent the lollipop, there was no kids to select, but there was a word called guild, G-U-I-L-D. I said, no, that can't be. That is impossible. I clicked on it, and I actually watched the scene, and sure enough, 
they are saying we represent the lollipop guild. Let me tell you something. When I was four or five years old and saw that movie for the first time, the word guild was not in my vocabulary, but the word kids was. And so I thought all those years they were saying the kids, they weren't saying that. And so I called my sister up, who's one year older than me. I said, Londa, I got to ask you something. I said, you remember when we used to watch the, the Wizard of Oz when we were kids? Yeah, I remember that, bro. I said, do you remember that one scene? And right there she said, we represent the lollipop kids. I said, that's the way you heard it too? She said, well, yeah, that's what it is. I said, I said sis, we're wrong. I went to work. I, I'm not kidding you. I, went to, I know this doesn't sound very spiritual. We'll, we'll clean it up here in a little bit. I went to work, and my manager, who was six months older than me, I said, Tom, I said, do you remember that scene from The Wizard of Oz? And he starts doing the whole thing right there at my desk. We represent the lollipop kids. I said, he thinks it's the kids, do." And so I was wrong. And then I thought, okay, I got my wife on this one, because right either before that or after that, there's these three ballerinas that come out on their toes, and they got these screeching high voices. We represent the, I used to think they were saying the lullaby ease. So I started singing that song to my wife. And she said, what are you saying? I said, we represent the lullaby ease. She says, that's not what they're saying. I'm like, honey, I know this is what they're saying. She said, Google it. She was right again. They're saying we represent the lullaby league. League was not in my vocabulary at the time. To me, it was just three little girls singing, we represent the lullaby ease. Here's what the point I want to make about that. You know, even when I was faced with truth, I said to my wife, I honestly said to my wife, I said, I don't want it to be the, the lollipop guild. I don't want it to be the lullaby league. I want it to be the lollipop kids. That is still what is happening in this world. We've misunderstood the gospel. We've misunderstood this message of grace. We've misunderstood his message of eternal love and security. And even when we're faced with absolute truth, we go, I don't want it to be that way. I've got to forfeit everything I've ever learned, everything I've ever known. The gospel is hid. The first person she encounters on the way to the Emerald City is the scarecrow. Notice the order, the scarecrow. What does he need? He needs a new brain. You know, anybody that comes to Christ, it starts right here. It starts right there. Jesus said, repent, which means change your mind. He needed a new brain. The next person she meets is the tin man. He needs a new heart. Well, you know what? When you come to Christ, that's exactly what he does. He gives you a brand new heart. And the third person she meets is the, the lion. And what does he need? He needs courage. I'm going to tell you something. One of the things I've found with the message of grace, I have more courage than I've ever had in my entire life. When I understand that he loves me no matter what, I want to tell you something. It gives me such courage. It gives me such boldness. So she meets these guys on the way. And she gets to the Emerald City, and finally they get into that big room where the Oz is at. And there he is, that big face up there. He looks like it's on a video screen. And smoke is pouring in all these different colors. And fire is raging. And he's like, what do you want? He's kind of mean to them almost. Rawr, he's growling at them. They're all shaking. And they're trying to be nice to him. But he just kind of keeps you know, that's the picture of people have of an Old Testament God, an Old Covenant God. He didn't live in us then. He lived on us. 
And so we had this picture of him that he's, he, he's always out to destroy us. But it was that little dog. It was that little Toto that figured it all out and went over there and grabbed the hem of that curtain and pulled it open. And there stood the ox, who's a picture of God. Now he's not so scary anymore. Now he walks out. And you know what I found? He falls apart like a $2 suitcase, doesn't he? He's so gentle. He's weeping. He's just crying. Oh, you need a new brain. You need a new heart. You need courage. Friends, in Matthew chapter 27, I believe it's verse 51, it talks about the veil when Jesus died, that curtain being rent from the top to the bottom, the curtain being pulled away, and so that we could see a different expression of God. Do you get that picture? And the Oz, he grants them everything they desired. You get the new brain. You get the new heart. You get the new badge of courage. But what can I do for you, young lady? I want to go home. And you know one thing I found about those ruby slippers? If there's a scene in the movie, and I haven't seen it in several years, but there's a scene in the movie when that witch who represents the devil tried to touch those slippers and got her little fingers toasted. Burn her. I'm going to tell you something. When you get this message of grace, when you get that message of God's unconditional love and this message of his faithfulness working in your heart, I'm going to tell you something. He will not be able to touch you the way he's been able to touch you. I'm talking about the enemy. He fears this message right here. Great is his faithfulness. He fears that message of God's unconditional love. He fears that message of grace. Oh, he hates this message. I've experienced more opposition in this last week. I'm not kidding. I'm not going to get into it because I'm not going to glorify things. I have experienced more opposition in the last week or so. When I preached that message a couple of weeks ago about God's love, what manner of love. Oh, man, I'm going to tell you something. The opposition just started coming out of the woodwork. But I resorted to saying, hey, listen, great is thy faithfulness. And so what Dorothy finds out is she finds out all along all she had to do is click those heels together with those ruby slippers. That's a picture of grace. She didn't need anything else. She already had everything she needed that pertained to life and godliness already on her. In those days, Old Testament, on her, new days, in us. You have everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. Do you get that picture? There's a picture of the two covenants. The God behind the curtain and the God with no curtain. He's not in a box anymore. He's no longer living behind the curtain. He is out of the curtain. There's the new covenant. Oh, man. Thank you, Father. Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to be closing with these scriptures. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect for those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible... It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. 
First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. What are we talking about? Covenants. He set it aside so that he could establish the second one. And by that will, by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In 1996, I got a phone call that my sister-in-law had been killed in a car accident, so I went to North Carolina. I was nine months in the old in Jesus, and I had just received the baptism of the Holy Spirit earlier in the very same month she got killed in with the evidence of speaking in tongues. We got there, we had the weekend in front of us, so I wanted to attend church somewhere. So I found out where that family went to church, and uh, it was a little Baptist church out in the country. I thought, okay, that's where I'm going. I'm nine months old in Jesus. And the minister that day had just gotten back from the Brownsville revival that was taking place down in Florida, if you remember that revival that went on for many years down there. He had just gotten back from Florida. And he's up there, and part of his message is, he's like, man, when I was at Brownsville revival, the Holy Spirit of God convicted me. Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit of God does not convict you. He convinces you. He convicts the unbeliever, but not the believer. When it talks about he convicts, he convicts the world, not the believer. He convinces us. He's not here to make us feel sorry for anything. He's paid the price for everything. He said, when I was down there, the Holy Spirit of God convicted me. And maybe just a play on words. I understand that. And he said, I went down to the altar. When I was down to the altar, I heard the Holy Spirit say, you need to go home. You need to deal with your video cassette library and all that bad music that you've got and stuff like that. He said, so I went home. He said, when I got home, he said, I went through all my videotapes, and everyone that didn't please God went in the garbage bag. Didn't please God went in the garbage bag. Everything went in the garbage bag. He said, I had a whole garbage bag full of them. And he said, you know what I did? He said, you know what? Here's what I did. He said, I waited till the night before my garbage is taken until it was dark. And he said, I went out there and I put it in there. And the reason I did that, he said, because I didn't want any of you seeing me do that because I, had a, I was afraid that you might come over and take my video because that's out of my garbage can. He said, he looked at the congregation, he said, now do you think that makes me holier than you? He said, you better believe it does. And you know what? I was in his amen corner that day because I'm thinking, that's right, brother, you preach it. You preach about this stuff. Oh, how wrong was I? Did you just hear what I just read? It says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You are not made holy by putting vid bad videotapes and CDs in a garbage bag. Get rid of them if you got them, I, if you want to, get rid of them. But it's not what makes you holy. It's the body of Jesus Christ, and it's once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is how it was under the Old Covenant. But when the priest, there's that definite article, when this priest, who is this priest? It's the great is thy faithfulness priest. It's Jesus. When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is my covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. Watch what he says. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin 
is no longer necessary. What awesome news. This morning, as I was laying in bed, the thought came to me that Thomas Chisholm, the one who wrote Great is Thy Faithfulness, the man who wrote that great song, was richer than he could have ever known. That one statement he made toward the end of his life is the richest statement I have ever heard in my life. He said, I must not fail to record the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. If that statement was the only inheritance that he left to his children's children, they are the richest children in the whole world. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. Father, I want to thank you for your awesome grace and your awesome faithfulness. I have stood and I have preached the Word of God exactly the way you gave it to me. I compromise nothing. Father, I want to thank you that we are people that see the difference in these two covenants. We live under a new covenant with better promises. Father, I want to thank you that because you put faithfulness on the inside of your people, you cannot disown us. It's impossible. It's impossible. Father, thank you for showing us your love even in the midst of a chaotic book like Lamentations, when death is all around, sickness abounds, chaos and unrest is everywhere. Sandwiched right in the middle of that is, great is thy faithfulness. Father, we stand in that declaration in Jesus' name. Amen.